Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. Our church family is, I was going to say blessed, I suppose that's questionable, by the presence of a large number of retired reverend gentlemen. Um, we always stand ready to be useful in the church's life when called upon, and uh, so I'm more than happy to be here whilst uh, Peter is unable to be here this morning. I have a strange relationship with John 3.16. You may have noticed, you may have noticed that the, uh, that the scripture reading stopped at verse 15. Now you may think that this is a worrisome sign. Doesn't the pastor believe in John 3.16? Why wouldn't he include that on the reading? Surely that's germane. Well, I want to assure you that even though what I'm going to do this morning doesn't particularly centre on John 3.16, it is nonetheless the background music, if you will, the soundtrack to everything that we shall consider together. Back in the mid-1978, I fronted the ordination committee of the Baptist Union of New South Wales. I had been a pastor, an associate pastor at a, a Bondi Junction Baptist Church in Sydney for two years, a youth pastor, although my children and my grandchildren refused to believe that I was ever a youth pastor. <laughs> but I was. And I had been for a year and a half the pastor of that church and at the Baptist College as a private student. But there I was in front of the ordination committee and I was assigned John 3.16 as the sermon that I was to deliver as part of our time together. Now I do admit on occasions to having a slightly warped sense of humour. Not very often you will understand, but just a quirk every so often. And it did occur to me, why would whoever chose this verse, why would they give it to me for this occasion? Were they implying that there were members of the ordination committee who needed to hear John 3.16 and respond? Well, I played with that idea for a while and thought that it was possibly unlikely and probably unwise if I was to proceed on that basis. But I did feel something of a fraud having to present an overtly evangelical message to what was presumably uh, not only a group of committed Christians, but perhaps even the cream of the denominational crop. I settled on not doing that. I dissected it. I said, here is the grounds for God's action. God so loved and then he sprung into action in the most extraordinary way. That his only son should die. That whoever, so, whoever believes on him should not perish, but would have everlasting life. I likened it to God acting in the Exodus. God saw his people were oppressed. He had compassion on them. And he came down and led them out of slavery into freedom. God always sees us with compassion. He always acts decisively, not only decisively, but redemptively. He restores 
what is the tarnished image of God. He recreates us. He makes us new. He forgives us. It's not something we earn or deserve. It's a free gift. It's God's sovereign action by his spirit. Now, I thought that was a pretty good sermon to deliver to the ordination body. And here I stand, a reverend gentleman, so it must have been successful. It was probably better than asking them to come down the aisle after singing 16 verses of Just As I Am. The older members of the congregation will know that song and how it was perhaps used, if not abused, in days gone past. I do remember the phrase, and anyone here remember it? The buses will wait, let's sing three more verses. Yes, there's a couple nodding their heads. Glad to see I'm not the only old fogey present. God sees us in love. He acts out of his grace decisively, redemptively. He transforms us, in other words. But let's have a look at these other verses. Now here I have a problem, this building, I have one complaint about it, it's a long way between here and the back wall, and what I'm trying to read is very small, so pardon me while I turn around to the bigger print. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I want you to note that this language is not quite the same as Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. For a start, it changes from the Son of Man language, and this is in the past tense, whereas Jesus had spoken, obviously, of his death in the future tense. These verses are most likely, almost surely, John's reflection on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, rather than a continued reporting of it. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the, into the darkness, but people loved the darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. All those... Well, that was a bit quick, wasn't it? <laughs> Let's try and go backwards. Can you put that back onto the right slide for me? My apologies. Occasionally technology breaks down. There once was a day when the only thing I feared was dropping my notes. Oh, we've got it up again. Thank you. All those who do evil hate the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But those who live by the light, live by the truth, rather come into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. We're going to consider Nicodemus. John chapter 3 is not the only place that Nicodemus crops up in the gospel. 
I have called him the man who lived in the shadows. The question is, did he come to the light? Was his life transformed? Were the niggles of doubt that drove him to seek out Jesus, were they ever resolved? Interesting question. Did he ever experience the transformation of the grace of God apart from his own works as a Pharisee to strictly keep all of the law? Not only the law as written in the Old Testament, but literally the thousands of laws that the Pharisees themselves and others had made up along the way. The law says, do not do work. Well, what's work? Well, you've got to tie a knot. Does that work? Well, that depends where you tie the knot and what your purpose is. If you tie a knot to keep your clothing together, that's not work. You can do that on the Sabbath. But if you tie a rope onto a bucket and drop it in a well, that's work. You can't tie that knot. You get the drift, do you? Pharisees loved this stuff. They lived for it, literally. And they thought that by doing so, their honouring of God would be so obvious that on the basis of all that they had done, they would find themselves acceptable in his sight. Did Nicodemus ever come out of the shadows? Well, who were the Pharisees? Interesting question. You've heard them mentioned so many times. Well, they were one of three common sects within Judaism of the time. These sects had religious, social and political connotations. The two others were the Sadducees and the Zealots and both of these other groups get various mentions through the scriptures. Now I've always remembered who the Sadducees were because the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees didn't which is why they were sad, you see. That makes sense, doesn't it? Zealots, on the other hand, well, they were political fanatics, as we will see in just a moment. Now, who were the, who were the Sadducees? Well, their main concern was the temple and its ritual. They were zealous for that building and what took place in that building. They were obsessed by it. Obviously, if you were a priest, you were likely to be a Sadducee. And they took it upon their task as preserving, defending and encouraging the worship. And they took their jobs, or at least their self-appointed roles, extremely seriously. What was their attitude towards Rome? Well, one of compromise and even alliance. They were politically savvy enough to know that Rome had granted them a certain degree of political freedom and even religious freedom. They were one of the few religions of the Roman Empire that were officially recognised. They would not be persecuted if they followed their religion. They were free to do so. And so they saw Rome as protecting the temple and the sacrifices and they were more than happy to march in step with their Roman overlords as a consequence. 
what we missed there was what their makeup were. They were mainly upper-class members of society, members of the Sadducees. Now, the Zealots, their main concern was political independence and therefore their attitude to Rome is almost a given. They simply wished to kick the Romans out, not to put too fine a point on it. They would do anything that they possibly could to subvert the rule of Rome and do everything they possibly could to gain independence for the Jewish people. Now, who were the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a group of people who were dedicated to the law. They were not so dedicated to the temple. In fact, they tended to act as a sort of counterbalance and said, yes, okay, the temple has its place and the sacrifices have their place, but the law of God is that which defines us as a people. And obedience to the law is complicit upon us as an obligation to the ancient covenant, the agreement that God made with us that he would be our God and we would be his people if we obeyed his law. Therefore, they said, it is a burden and a privilege upon us to obey the law. Their attitude towards... <clears throat> Thank you. Their attitude towards... Uh, by the way, um, they were the sponsors of the synagogues scattered throughout the nation, the, the country of Galilee and further and all through the world wherever Jews had found themselves. There were a synagogue. The, the Pharisees were behind the synagogue. They were the rabbis. They were the teachers in the village schools. They ensured that Jewish children could read and write and all could, by the way. And of course, the main text that they had to read and write was the ancient scrolls. They were kept in little containers inside the synagogue and they were taken out for Sabbath worship and they were taken out for the instruction of the children as the primer during the week. Their attitude towards Rome was one of tolerance. We'll put up with them and we will compromise with them insofar as we maintain our obedience to the law. The membership were all extremely wealthy because they were occupied not in earning money, they had to have it to start with, they were occupied in teaching, they were occupied in policing people's lives. And so they were usually upper class from the upper class or from the extremely wealthy middle class, merchants, professional people and otherwise. Now the interesting thing is that after AD 70, when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, just as Jesus said they would within that generation that he spoke to, after Jerusalem was completely and utterly destroyed, and I mean completely and utterly destroyed, the Roman soldiers even prized apart the stones that had collapsed from the temple in order to get the gold that covered the dome of the, of the temple out. Um, they completely destroyed the place and it was not lived in for centuries. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were sold into slavery, so much that the slavers, uh, traders complained to the Romans that there were far too many coming onto the market and the price had gone down. There was no money in it anymore. 
and over a million had been killed in the process. After AD 70, the nation of Israel was no more. No more temple, no more sacrifices. And so the Pharisees were ideally placed to survive because they didn't need the temple or the sacrifices. They had the synagogues and the schools spread out through the known world. They taught the law. And it was the Pharisees who came at the whole idea of modern-day Judaism. There is a direct line between them and how the Jewish faith is practised today. No temple, no sacrifices, synagogue, schools, the law. Here's an interesting question. Can you use a lift, an elevator, on the Sabbath? You might think, what's this got to do with Nicodemus? Well, Pharisees are alive and well. And not only within modern Judaism. As a young boy growing up in a Baptist church in Geelong, we had a youth camp. We couldn't swim on the Sunday because that was Sunday and you don't swim. So on the youth camp at Torquay, we sat on the sand dunes and watched the waves. The Pharisees weren't there, but we knew we would be in trouble. I haven't time to go through the rest of it. Thankfully, we've outlived those days. But even in every congregation, there are those that have an idea of how a Christian acts and behaves, and it's okay if they stick to that definition for themselves, but when they judge somebody else's faith and commitment on the basis of their view of how a Christian should act and behave, then we have a Pharisee. Can you ride a lift on the Sabbath? Well, let's have a little look. How do we do that, folks? Thank you. <laughs> Some of the slowest elevators in the world can be found in hotels on Miami Beach. We have uh, Orthodox Jewish people coming here for the season, for all year round. So the question is, how do people get to their homes, get to their rooms on the Sabbath if you're on a high floor? Sleeping in the lobby is not a solution. The problem is, for observant Jews, it is forbidden to ride an elevator on the Sabbath. The, the Bible simply says we do not make a fire on the Sabbath. When you push the button and create electricity, you're creating a fire. The door opens, there's all types of electricity, all types of, of labors are being done, and therefore that would be forbidden on the Sabbath. The other problem is the electric eye in the elevator door. The electric eye detects your presence, opens those doors again. Uh-oh, your body has opened those doors. If we interfere with the electric eye, it's just as bad as pushing the button. So the rabbis, together with technology and science, have come up with a solution where they create the Sabbath elevator where there's no need to push any buttons. We do have a Shabbat elevator for our, for our Jewish customer. Our maintenance staff, typically around 5.30 in the evening, before the sun will set, will key the elevator where it goes straight to the rooftop up to 17, and then we'll stop on every floor on the way down until it hits actually the basement level. Going up, the Shabbat elevator is an express to the penthouse. We're going to be singing um, the Shabbat songs with the Smiros, especially if we're alone together quick. in the elevator. It goes quick. It's quick. It does, yes. The penthouse, it goes quickly. Coming down, the elevator takes about seven minutes, stopping at every floor. 
it could take seven minutes for the elevator to arrive. Not bad, perhaps, on a day of rest. The day is a more relaxing day, so we're not, no appointments, doctors are running with yeah. the kids. It's, you know, everyone's walking and it's a relaxed day, so we have time. It's good we have Shabbos elevator. It helps a lot um, with kids. For those who live by ancient law, modern life can be a challenge. But elevators make modern life possible, and the Shabbat elevator is proof that people will always find ways to use them. Here we are in the lobby, we're going to get out. We six seconds to get out, not to break the circuit. Oh, here we are, automatic. Problem solved. Now here's an even more pressing problem. Can you use toilet paper on the Sabbath? Now you didn't know this was a problem, did you? I've always wanted to talk about toilet paper during the sermon. It's a bit of a worry, isn't it? This is from a rabbinical website. Things that are attached by glue, sewing or even perforation cannot be unattached on the Sabbath because this changes its form and makes it into something different. Pre-tear toilet paper before the Sabbath. Also for paper towels, pre-tear what you might need or use paper napkins. Problem solved. Can you use a refrigerator? What if the light comes on when you open the door? You can't light a fire on the Sabbath. Problem. Using a refrigerator on the Sabbath is permissible only if you take out the light bulb or tape up the switch that activates it before the Sabbath. What's the point of all of this? And by the way, I need to make this quite clear. I am not holding those folk on that video up to ridicule. I think they're wrong. My warped sense of humour does cut in, I must admit. I try and hold it back and I think it's frankly ridiculous, but I'm not holding them up to ridicule. I know Orthodox Jews personally in years gone by in Sydney and I found them to be genuinely good people who wished to glorify God. And I have no argument with that desire. I simply have a problem with the method. They wanted to obey the law. They wanted to honour their covenant obligations. And they wanted to glorify God. And so did Nicodemus. What's the danger? The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, if this Pharisee had lived today, he would have said, I never press the button on a lift, I pre-tear my toilet paper, and I take the bulb out of my fridge. <laughs> thank God I'm not like other men. What it does is turn you into a self-righteous prig. You think you've made it. You are better than everybody. Look at you poor people. You can hardly swim at all. Hey, I got my first certificate. I can swim 50 metres. I'm better than a lot of people. Here's the problem when you try and erect a moral ladder and step to the top. You can do it 
provided your vision is narrow and you ignore your own faults and failings. You can say, yes, I'm better than all of these people, but what if the measure is not 50 metres or 100 metres or a mile or 10? Which one of us can swim the New Zealand? Why would you want to? Good question. Kiwis here? Beautiful country, been twice, would love to go again, if they let me in after that. Why not? Because we all fall short. Depends where your measure is stretched, isn't it? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's all very good to measure ourselves against others, but when you measure ourselves against God, fail, and we all stand on exactly the same level. We have all fallen short, except a Pharisee never knows it. He's better, she's better than everybody else. Jesus went into their synagogues and a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. The Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was completely restored. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Isn't it great to be a righteous Pharisee? You could be so zealous for the law that you could plot to kill the lawmaker. God himself in flesh. Disposable. Because you wish to keep the law. Would you not think that your priorities and understanding are slightly off? Jesus said, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. What comes out of his mouth makes him unclean. The disciples said, don't you know you've just ticked off all of the Pharisees? It doesn't actually say that, but that's my paraphrase. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immoralities, theft, false testimony and slander, said Jesus. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make a man unclean. The Pharisees, you see, were concentrating on the wrong things. How did Jesus categorise the Pharisees? Blind guides, fools, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You snakes, you brood of vipers. Not terribly PC, was Jesus back in his day. How will you escape being condemned to hell? And so upon you will fall all the righteous blood that has been shed. Truly I tell you, all of this will come on this generation. So here is Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. Why? Perhaps because that was a break in the day. We shouldn't see any, you know, I'll sneak in while nobody's watching. He was a teacher, a recognised person in Jerusalem of high status. One of his jobs was to suss out false teachers. Simon the Pharisee asked Jesus to his house, remember, for dinner. He wanted to suss him out. And when Jesus forgave the woman who bathed his feet with her tears, 
Simon said to himself, well, no, I know you're not a prophet. That, you see, was the reason for asking him there. I'm going to check him out. Now I know you're not a prophet because you would have known what sort of person this woman was. So Nicodemus going to see Jesus was not a problem. The night time simply means that they both had time. But why did he go? Why did he go? The night time back in those days, there was no Netflix. (laughs) Couldn't go for a drive to see the sights. You went to bed early. It was a time for reflection and thought, a cool breeze perhaps. And in those times of reflection and thought, was it possible that Nicodemus thought to himself, how do I cope with who I am? I obey the law. I do all the little things. I I call people out if they're not doing it I should be satisfied but there is a gnawing ache inside of me that says something is missing is it possible that this uneducated carpenter could help point the way Rabbi we know that you are a teacher who has come from God no one could perform the signs you were doing unless God were with him. You see that that is respectful. He's curious. He's open to what Jesus would have to say. There is no sense in this statement or anything that Nicodemus said that is judgmental towards Jesus at all. He's not there as a Pharisee. He's there as a man, stripped of that identity for the moment, I believe. You must be born again. Now let's not confuse the minute it takes to read these verses with the whole conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. That possibly took an hour or more. John is doing us a favour and parchment was expensive. (laughs) He only had so much of it. So he condensed down what was said to the pertinent fact. Nonetheless, we may assume, I think, safely that this was Jesus' immediate response. He knows how we tick. He knows how Nicodemus ticks. And perhaps he could see that aching doubt within Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you will never get to a point of fulfillment in life and acceptance before God by adhering to the law. Because the law only tells you, you can't do it. You fail. You can't measure up. You have to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Listen to David, for example. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your love. Nicodemus, you don't need to fiddle with the edges of your life. You need to be made new, transformed. How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. Was this bewilderment? Understandable if it is so. I think it certainly turned into it as we will see. Was it scorn and rejection? This is, oh you idiot Jesus, not possible. Why do I waste my time coming to see you if you're going to deal up nonsense like this? 
Is that what Nicodemus was thinking? Or perhaps it was wistful. If only. If only you could go back and start again. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you've really fouled up big time with a bad choice. Maybe a series of bad choices has caught up with you. And when it's quiet, when it's peaceful, when it's time for reflection, you wish you could just go back and start again. It's said that ancient children's fairy tales were just lessons in the realities of life. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a big fall. Humpty Dumpty fell off and he couldn't get... Even the king's horses and the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. What's the lesson? When it's broke, it's broke. You can't fix it. Have you ever felt like you've just dropped off a wall and you're in bits? Perhaps you're interested in the king's horses and the king's men. Not so much the horses, maybe the men could help put you back together again. But you think to yourself, no one cares. And if there was a stray king's man around, he wouldn't take any notice of me anyway. If only, if only we could start again, if only the slate could be cleaned, if only I could be somebody different to who I am. Truly, I say that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. The wind blows, Nicodemus, but nobody knows where it comes from or where it goes, but they can see its effects. So it is with the spirit of God. How can this be? Now he is bewildered, but he's not the only one who's bewildered. It's genuine bewilderment, and Jesus has it too. What, Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Here is Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart, and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Genuine bewilderment and a different worldview. Nicodemus would not have rated a poetic verse from the prophets along with the propositional verses of the law in the Old Testament. Not that he didn't believe the prophets, but propositional truth is easy to wrap your head around. What does a poetic explanation from the prophet have to do with measuring up to that? And so there would have been a tendency to downplay verses such as that in Ezekiel, and there were plenty of them. Nicodemus's worldview was that if you want a relationship with God, you have to be born a descendant of Abraham. And you have to live up to the obligations of the covenant. God's grace? Nah. God's mercy? Nah. Something that God does for you? Nah. It's who you are and you can't change it. 
It's how you live and you better be good at it. That's what matters. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was referring to an incident back in Numbers where a bronze stone Moses was erect, erected under God's provision and the people were to look to it and they would be healed from a plague of snakes that were obsessing them after they had rejected God and wished to go back to Egypt and return to slavery than muck around in the desert. It's an obscure little incident but here Jesus uses it as a prophecy for himself. What happened after that? Well, we don't know. Yes, that verse came, but Nicodemus didn't hear it, except insofar as he would ruminate on what Jesus had said. He who lives by the truth comes to the light. Did Nicodemus? Well, here it is. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier in earlier and who was one of them, member of the Sanhedrin, Jews ruling council, asked, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? John chapter 7, the Feast of the Tabernacles, pilgrims from all over the known world back to Jerusalem. Jesus was provocatively speaking in the temple itself. The soldiers had been sent to arrest him. They came back and said, we've never heard a man speak like this. We couldn't arrest him. The crowds were agitating for his death. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were working together for once and they wanted it too. And Nicodemus stands up and says, hang on a minute, we should listen to the man first before we condemn him. Now, was this a statement of faith? I think, in fact, it was more of a protest on legal technicality. What was, Zachy, what was Nicodemus thinking? Not sure, but I am sure that he thought not a good idea to stand up and say, I think I'm a disciple. I think I trust him. I think I believe in him. Much safer to say, hang on a minute, technicality, before we judge him, let's listen to the man. And then here. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body down and he was accompanied by Nicodemus. Third time, Nicodemus pops up in the Gospels. Why was he there? Trust? Obedience? Transformation? or a continuation of an anger against a legal process gone wrong and a good man hounded to his death. I tend to think it might be the latter rather than the former, but I have no idea. And then in Acts chapter 15, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, yes, post-resurrection, there were those who were Pharisees who placed their faith in Jesus. The question is, was Nicodemus among them? If Nicodemus was on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict him? Good question. You must be born again a transformed life.
My friends, this is where a transformed life starts. You may say, well, Gary, you've gone on about Pharisees that lived 2,000 years ago. I'm not likely to be a bloke like that. I'm not likely to hold to those sorts of things. There is a gap in everyone's life. What do you fill it with? Political philosophies? Are you out to save the world? Let's go for target zero. Doing the world a favour and everybody else? How zealous are you? How does your morality stack up? Yes, I'm a faithful person. I'm faithful to the person I'm with and I'll be faithful to the next one and the next one and the next one, but I'll never commit myself to anybody. How's that working out for you? What is it that you believe will make your life complete? What is it that is at the core of you? If somebody said, who are you? What are you zealous about? We live in difficult days as Christians, although that's not anything unusual, that tends to be cyclic. We're not exactly the flavour of the month. We're laughed at at fools. This book is a joke. Now, faith is nonsense. And yet we hold this to be a self-evident truth that no one comes to the Father except by Jesus. And the start of a transformed life is not to take the philosophies that are in vogue at the moment, not to spin them so that they become the core of who we are, so that they define us. What starts a transformed life, truly transformed, not only in time but eternity, is submitting to the sovereign actions of God to be remade. If you are a Humpty Dumpty in any dimension, yes, it's possible to be put back together again. For God so loved you that he acted constructively, sacrificially, to do the one thing that makes a difference to you. He died in your place. He carried your sin and your guilt and you go free. You didn't earn it. You don't work for it. It's a free gift. Doesn't matter the colour of your skin or which one of 3,483 genders you are. Doesn't matter what spins your top or floats your boat. True transformation comes when you accept the gift of God given in grace. He loved the world so much he gave his only son that you might have life eternal, not only length but quality, abundant life. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your power in our life to take even the most entrenched philosophy and turn it upside down. The biblical record leaves us in doubt as to where exactly Nicodemus stood. Lord God, help us to be clear where we stand. Thank you, Lord God, for your love in Christ and for the transforming power of your spirit 
in Jesus' name. Amen.